for you to visit a hundred churches this morning. The great likelihood is a sermon that you would hear would be in the realm of sanctification. I said last week that the Bible is written for four reasons. It is written for doctrine, teaching, the primary teaching, the video, you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. The other three reasons the Bible are written, they coalesce, they're together like glue. The Bible is written for reproof. The playbook called the Bible, reproof. You're running the wrong play with your life. You're off the path. The Bible is written for reproof. It is written for correction. The playbook of the Bible. You're running the wrong play. Correction is, this is the right play. Set by your head coach, God Himself. Not to win a ball game on this earth, but to win your life and make it in the realm of abundance that you might have peace and that you might serve Him. Bible is written for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's why Jesus begins His ministry with a sermon on the mount. That's why He ends His ministry with a parable of the sheep and the goats. And in the three years in between, he never stops talking about how you're to live your life. Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. Stop pushing away the beggars and the Gentiles. I've come for them. Man with the withered hand, Sabbath day, no problem, I'm going to heal you. Disciples saying, you can't come within 300 yards of those lepers. Jesus pretends like he doesn't hear him and walks straight up there. His entire life is instruction in righteousness. When Pastor Strand or Pastor Shower preach a sermon, there is a 90% chance that it will be in the realm of reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. When you come to certain Sundays like Reformation Sunday or Christmas or Easter, It is going to be in the realm of justification. What Christ has done for us. That's what I'm preaching on this weekend. Eternal salvation, its determination, and its assurance. I do so many funerals, more and more funerals, for people who say, my next door neighbor has died, would you do the funeral? My aunt, my second cousin, three times removed, has passed. Would you do the funeral? Funeral directors calling all the time. Pastor, are you available on such and such a date? I never turn it down because it's always the opportunity to bring into people's lives I perhaps will never see again, to bring into their lives the gospel. What Christ has done for us And death is not the final word. And as I do these funerals for people I do not know, I will always call them. I always say, Eddie, give me a phone number. I always call the family. I always set up a time to meet with them. I want to know the person that I'm doing the service for. And I always ask the question, were they a believer? Do they believe in Christ? 
And the answers I get 80% of the time, well, Joe wasn't in church for the last 20 years. You know, uh, Mary had an addiction to alcohol. Uh, the words that came out of Sam's mouth were just horrendous. And I always say kindly, I said, I, I didn't ask you that. I said, were they a believer in Christ? And I always hope that they grew up Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian. I always hope that they grew up in a church setting. Why? Because they heard the gospel. At some time in their life, they heard the gospel. Was your loved one a believer? And if they come up with all the reasons why that individual wasn't a believer... I always share with them what I think is one of the top five most important verses in the Bible. It's 1 John 3.20, not the gospel, the epistle, 1 John 3.20. Even if our heart condemns us, even if our heart says, you know, there are times I think maybe, maybe it's a myth or a fairy tale, there are times I think that, even if our heart condemns us, even if our actions condemn us, and who amongst us is not a sinner, even if our actions condemn us, our life wasted by drugs or alcohol, even if our actions condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. He knows whether we believe in Him or not. The thief on the cross, I know I bring it up perhaps too many times, sorry, the thief on the cross, Even if your actions condemn you, God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. He knows whether you will come to the faith in Him. Lee Strobel carries it one step further. He says if a person grew up Hindu or Buddhist and never got to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, as he writes his books, The Case for Faith, Case for Christ, the theologians he interviews... They say God knows whether if they had had the opportunity to hear the gospel, He knows whether they would have believed. Even if our heart condemns us, salvation works this way. Even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows whether we have faith in Him. He knows even if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, almost invisible to the human eye, He knows whether you believe in Him. I do jigsaw puzzles during the winter. That's not too much information, is it? That's not TMI. I do jigsaw puzzles during the winter. Two or three of them. i got to have something going that I see progress being made, Okay. Is salvation a jigsaw puzzle? Here's a good work. I'm going to put it into the puzzle. Here's another good work. Here's a month's worth of good works. I'm on a good roll here. I let people cut in on me in the traffic and didn't get upset. And I helped the next door neighbor with his groceries coming into his house. I got some good stuff going on. I'm going to add them to the jigsaw puzzle called salvation. And then, uh, whoops, I did something really, really bad here. Do I have to take away two pieces? Is salvation this jigsaw puzzle where you and I add to it? Heaven forbid. By grace are you saved, the primary doctrine of the Bible. By grace are you saved through faith. 
It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. I want to look at Romans chapter 8. Romans is arguably the greatest book in the New Testament, if not the greatest book in the Bible. It is the mighty mountain of God's grace. I want to go to the eighth chapter of Romans because that is the greatest chapter in the greatest book. And I want to go to verses 38 and 39 because they are the most powerful verses in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, the one who was a great enemy of Christianity, you remember, the one who rounded up Christians like a pack of rats, take them back to the prison, torture them to find out where other Christians are, and then assent to their deaths. The Apostle Paul, the great enemy of Christianity, becomes a great champion of Christianity by the grace of God on the road to Damascus. And in verses 38 and 39, here's what he says about salvation. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all the universe would have the power to separate me from my salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. There are times in life when what is needed is argument, logical argument. Cool, coherent, logical, systematic defense of the faith. We've had great men in our lifetime who have done just that. When I'm in high school, it's Josh McDowell. He writes a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And that book was the Bible of apologetics for decades. It gave arguments as to why God and Jesus and faith are all able to be reasonably argued. In the last 30 years, it was a great Lee Strobel. His books, The Case for Faith, Case for Christ, Case for Miracles, The Case for the Resurrection. I've handed out more of his books than any other book except Red Sea Rules. These were men who spent their lives arguing in defense of the faith. Can you do it? First Peter 3.15, set apart in your heart Jesus is Lord. Be ready at every opportunity to give it to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's within you. Can you do it? Can, do you say, I'm not as smart as McDowell. I'm not as smart as Lee Strobel. You don't need to be smart. Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, the invisible qualities of God have been clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. You don't need to be smart. All you need to do, do is look at a tree and say, how did that get there? Did some great scientist put together a sperm and an egg and come up with a way to manufacture a human being? You don't have to be smart. In fact, you have to be pretty not smart to sit and say, I don't believe in God. <laughs> you give arguments. Romans 8, 31 through 37 it is the Apostle Paul, smart as he was, the head of his class under Gamaliel, the great Pharisee before he became a Christian. He is arguing the faith. 
What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not graciously and freely give us all things? And it continues on for another five verses. He is arguing the faith. And then he puts away the textbook, and he says, I'm going to get down to this. I'm going to get down to the fact that I was headed for hell because I didn't know Jesus, and I was torturing Christians, and I was killing Christians. I was headed to hell. But God had me as His child since the moment I was born. That's why He could write personal testimony. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation can separate me from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Personal testimony. When I read Lee Strobel's books, Case for Faith, Case for Christ, and I've read them probably 10 or 15 times, I'm always touched and amazed by the arguments he uses to defend the faith. But when you have these great theologians weighing in on the questions, and the great theologian puts aside his reasonable mind, and he says to Lee Strobel, when my wife got terminal cancer, when my wife got terminal cancer, I was face to face with faith itself. I can write all these things so I can sell my books. But my, when my wife gets terminal cancer and she has it for three years, I come face to face with God and my Savior. And I realize at that point that I can throw all my books away and say, I don't believe this. Or I can say, the God, the Savior I write about, he is right here in this room with my wife and I. And when she is under hospice care, he is by her bed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he's not only by her bedside, he's by mine. When I read these books, I am more touched by the personal testimonies than I am by the argumentation. The Apostle Paul sees himself as a thief on the cross ready for death, eternal death. And God comes on that road to Damascus and he gives them eternal salvation. I am convinced on basis of evidence in my own life that cannot be denied, on the basis of the miracles that I heard about from the apostles. I was sure about it yesterday from the moment he transformed me on the road to Damascus. I was sure about it yesterday. I'm totally convinced today. And by the grace of God, when tomorrow comes, I'll be even more convinced because I'll have greater proof that God Himself is with His children. 
Let me look at four couplets that he puts together. He said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life can separate me from my salvation. Gene Clark's family, Gene and, and Bev, they were sitting in the front pew yesterday at 10 a.m. It was a funeral for Gene Clark Sr. My grandpa kept a record of every funeral, every baptism he ever did. My dad did the same, so have I. So that means 965 times I have shared the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul because I have never done a funeral in which I have not read Romans 8, 31 to 39. Neither death nor life shall separate us. Death is the great separator. When Thanksgiving comes, an individual who was always at your table will not be there. They are safe in heaven. And when these holidays come and when their birthdays come and they are not on this earth and when the day of their passing comes, it's like a ton of bricks weighing upon your hearts. Death is a great separator. Separates us from our families, from our hobbies, from our jobs, from our grandchildren. It separates us from everybody. Can death separate us from the love of God? It is the epitome of the truth of God's love. For in that moment that Satan, 2 Samuel 14 verse 14, in the moment that Satan takes our lives, God is there in the blink of an eye. And you're in his hands, in the hands of the holy angels, Martin Luther would say. And you are lifted up to heaven. Does death separate us from God? It separates us from everything that causes suffering. And it brings us into God's presence. It is the only ticket you have to get to heaven. Death. And that's why you never say goodbye to Gene Clark or to anyone else. You say, until I see you again, so certain are you that death does not separate you from your salvation. Does life separate you from God? It certainly can, right? Does life separate you from God? War separates countries. Poverty separates whole classes of people. Sickness separates us from our loved ones. The little girl, Mary Alice, seven years of age, having the bone marrow transplant. Oh, my goodness. Seven years of age, and two weeks ago, she gets bone marrow from some gentleman in Germany. And her bone marrow is all removed, and she lives in a bubble. No one can get close to her. It's like when the nurses come in, they're like astronauts, okay? No one can come close to her. She's got no defense mechanism. Her bone marrow is all gone. And the hope and prayer is that within two weeks, the new bone marrow will begin to manufacture her own bone marrow, and this dear girl will live until she's 80 or 90. Life can separate us from people. Illness. Well, sorry, I can't come to the, funeral, uh, the family reunion tomorrow. I just finished up chemotherapy and radiation, and it wouldn't be safe for me to come. Sometimes our sin causes us to do stupid things that separate us from those around us. 
Here comes sin. We're separated from our families. We're separated from our own peace. And we're separated from God. Can life separate us from the love of Christ? Thief on the cross. Samson. King David. Moses. The disciples. Simon Peter. I was reading a devotion last night and it said Simon Peter wept. What was he weeping about? It was years later and he was weeping over the fact that he had denied Jesus some 25 years earlier. He was still weeping over it. He knew he was forgiven, but he still wept over it. Can life separate us from God? If it didn't for David and Moses, if it didn't for Simon Peter and the disciples, then it shall not for us. And when those aspects of life come to us that separate us from others, like the illnesses, and I'm going through a bankruptcy here, I don't feel like getting together with my cousins, thank you very much. When life separates us from these things, who comes strongly? Who comes strongly? Didn't Jesus say, John 16, when the storm comes, I'm already in the storm. And didn't David say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know who's with me in the valley. Neither death nor life. And then he says, neither angels nor demons. Now why in the world would angels separate us from God? (laughs) Why would the good angels separate us from God? Bible says the good angels rejoice over every sinner who repents. It's a hyperbole. A good angel could never separate you from God. They would desire just the opposite. But, but if the craziest thing ever happened and a good angel actually tried to separate you from God, guess who would win? Not the angel. God would win. Neither angels nor demons. Had a gentleman under hospice care this past week. He said, Pastor, tell me about the demons. I said, well, let me tell you about the good angels first, and, and then I'll tell you about the demons. The demons, as you know, they follow Satan, a third of them cast out of heaven. Can the demons separate you from God? They try with all their might. It is their highest moment when they cause you to fall into sin. And their greatest moment is if they kept you away from God forever. But... A demon stands no chance against God. Demon stands no chance. Mark 1.34 The demon possessed man said to Jesus, Why have you come? Have you come to destroy us? We know you are the Holy One of God. The one in you, 1 John 5.4 The one in you is stronger than the one in the world. This is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Neither death nor life nor angels nor demons can separate us from the love of God. And then he says, not the present or the future. The realm of time. The realm of time. Not the present nor the future. In your present right now, are you going through a divorce that does not separate you from your Lord? Are you going through bankruptcy at the present time? It does not separate you from your Lord. Were you diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? It doesn't separate you from your Lord. 
MS, dementia, does not separate you from your Lord. Your sin, does your sin separate you? Isaiah 59, 2 says it does. Your sin has separated you from God. He cannot see your face. He cannot bless you. Your sin has gotten in between you and God. Does God say, I'm so scared of sin in my children's life? God is that lion in heaven. And God shall chase you to your last breath. That's how deep His love is for you. He shall chase you to your last breath to bring you back to Him. Neither the things present nor things to come. Nothing separates you. And finally... He says, nothing in all creation can separate you. He uses a word that is only used one time in the Bible. He uses the Greek word heteros. Heteros means universe or other universes if they exist. Nothing in this universe or in any other universe. That's what Paul's talking about. Not this universe or any other universe God ever created can separate you from Him. The assurance of your salvation. Let me close for a moment. These last three or four years as I do funerals for total strangers and I see 200 people gathered hundred people gathered in that funeral home. I am more and more saddened by the seeming indifference to anything pertaining to the faith. The blank looks on the faces, the boredom that exists. I am more and more concerned as I see it. One of our families just went over to Europe on a cruise talking to me about it before the service, the great, great, great cathedrals. And it was for them as it was for Connie and I 25 years ago when we went to Germany. You have some of the most beautiful cathedrals in the world, and you have five people, ten people, showing up for worship on the Sabbath day. At the end of the service, when I asked the people to join with me in the Lord's Prayer, There might be two or three people speaking the Lord's Prayer out of a hundred people that are there. And I sit and listen and I say, do they not know the Lord's Prayer? Or don't they care to speak it? Parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, he sows the seed. Some falls on the soil and the birds come and eat it up. How many times at a funeral service have I heard someone say, Pastor, Great message. Where's your church? What time are your services? I'm going to start coming. Maybe one in a hundred. The word was sowed. Birds came and ate it up. Some of the seed is sown on thorny soil. It grows up and then the thistles swallow it up. And some falls on poor soil. The roots go down. The soil is not very rich. The plant dies. But for those of us, that's what he says, I'm convinced 
And then he speaks about us. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about rich people, intelligent people? He's talking about Christians. For those of us who believe, some of that seed fell on good soil and it multiplied a hundredfold. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them everlasting life. No one shall pluck them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you ever come to the point in your life wondering if when you pass, some sin's going to keep you away, some addiction's going to keep you away from heaven, something in your life is going to keep you away from heaven, the doctrine of the assurance of salvation, Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. You are God's child. You shall always be God's child. And nothing in this universe or the universe to come will ever separate you from Him. In our Lord's name, Amen. Heavenly Father, bless the power of Your Word and Your promises. May they find a spot in our heart that perhaps before was vacant. And may that spot in our heart be touched by your Spirit. And as our parochial school starts in 17 days, our children shall hear that message every single day about the love that God has for us and the inseparable connection between us who believe in him and our Lord and Savior. Bless the ministries of your kingdom on this earth in our Lord's name. Amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.